2: 35th President of the United States, the coming to power of John F. Kennedy, described by Norris Davidson, with Frank O'Dwyer, Jim Norton, and Brendan Caldwell, and the recorded voices of President Kennedy and Richard Nixon. The year was 1961, the date January the 20th, the time 12.21 Eastern Standard Time, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy's age was 43 when he took the oath as 35th President of the United States.
0: Took the oath before the Chief Justice, Earl Warren, with his hand on a Douay family Bible.
2: The Marine Band had been playing America the Beautiful, the music that opened this programme. The oath was taken loudspeakers echoing his voice in the frosty air. And then John Kennedy delivered the inaugural address that gained him the world's attention, for he spoke to the whole world and not just to his enormous share of it.
3: Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. This much we pledge and more. To those old allies whose cultural and spiritual origins we share, we pledge the loyalty of faithful friends. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, there is little we can do. For we dare not meet a powerful challenge at odds and split asunder. To those new states whom we welcome to the ranks of the free, we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away, merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. To those people in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves. For whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. To our sister republics south of our border, we offer a special pledge to convert our good words into good deeds in a new alliance for progress to assist free men and free governments in casting off the chains of poverty. But this peaceful revolution of hope cannot become the prey of hostile powers. Let all our neighbors know that we shall join with them to oppose aggression or subversion anywhere in the Americas, and let every other power know that this hemisphere intends to remain the master of its own house.
2: There had never before been a president who was elected from the Senate. That wasn't to affect his election campaign, but three major matters did. He was a Democrat, he was very young, the youngest president to be except Teddy Roosevelt, and he was a Catholic. We hope to show in this broadcast how he came to politics and how he defeated Richard Nixon and became president. The log cabin to White House progress, the poor boy making good in politics,
0: is something that has gone from the American scene. Many observers say that it was Nixon's self-pity, his portrait of himself as a poor boy, deprived in youth, that lost him votes, that went to a man who was clearly a success in himself. America admires success. President Kennedy's ancestry and upbringing made him president in the sense that Joseph Kennedy, his father, was determined that his family should excel, just as his politically minded father, Senator Patrick Kennedy, had shown him the way to success by his example. The Kennedys have been Americans for a hundred years now. If John F. Kennedy is anything but an American, then his reading and thinking make him international. Everywhere the Irish have adapted themselves to the ways of the people in the competitive world in which they find themselves. Activity in competition with others has ruled the Kennedys and brought them success. The 35th president is descended from Patrick Kennedy who emigrated from Ireland, settled in Boston, and died there in 1858, the year of the birth of his son Patrick Kennedy II. He became a Massachusetts senator and another senator who was active at the time was Senator Fitzgerald of East Boston. Both these men were in the liquor business, and both were engaged in the minor struggles of ward politics on which the major electoral campaigns are based, and which are so completely without mercy. The Irish were just fighting their way into power when the savage flowering of ward politics began. Patrick Kennedy II had a son, Joseph, who married a daughter of Senator Fitzgerald, and they became the parents of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Thus, both his grandfathers were involved in the political and commercial competition of Boston, and his father, Joseph Kennedy, inherited the harvest of those early years and disposed of it wisely and well. In the 1920s, the rich American was a very rich man, and Joseph Kennedy was a very rich American indeed who became richer from his interests in real estate, movies and Scotch whisky. But many a man who was a millionaire in the 20s was ruined by the end of the decade, or perhaps dead by his own hand, victim of the Wall Street crash, the Black Depression, the years of breadlines and gangsterdom. Those were the years in which the pages of The New Yorker seemed to rend themselves with rage over the disaster, the years made pitiful in a song.
1: They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there, right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for breath Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done
0: But Joseph Kennedy was one of the few who saw what was coming. He withdrew everything he had invested. He held every cent of it. And when stabilisation came along, he was able to reinvest. He was very largely responsible for the eventual recovery of Wall Street through his work as Roosevelt's executive in the financial wilderness. The imminence of the coming crash was brought home to him by, he says, information he got from a young shoeshine boy. The boy, polishing his shoes and chatting, gave him his views about what was going to happen on the market that day, and the boy was correct. Joseph Kennedy says that he then realised that, we quote, When the time comes that a shoeshine boy knows as much as I do about what is going on in the stock market, tells me so, and is entirely correct, then there's something wrong with me or with the market, and it's time for me to get out. And I did. But few others had his good sense. Everything was rising. Fortunes were being made. All seemed to be financially set in America. And the bubble burst.
1: Once in khaki suits, Ah, gee, we looked swell Full of that Yankee doodle dum Half a million boots Went slogging through hell And I was the kid with a drum Oh, say, don't you remember They called me Al It was Al all the time Say, don't you remember I'm your pal Buddy, can you spare
4: At the start of the Depression, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was 12 years old. His father had two intentions for his family. Through athletics and hard study, they were to learn how to excel. And having been each made financially secure by his efforts, they were not to have to struggle up to a position from which to go after a specific object. They would each reach those positions early in life, fresh and secure for a start in a competitive world. Here, in the third generation of American Kennedys, was the complete break with the self-made man
2: fighting his way into power and only achieving it fully at the end of his days. But the fighting spirit, the rivalry, was there all right in the Long family, fostered by Joseph Kennedy's insistence that they go in for every kind of sport, football, swimming, sailing, skiing. An observer gives an amusing account of seeing a five-year-old Kennedy push over a four-year-old Kennedy, who immediately pushed over a three-year-old Kennedy. Hard work, hard play, and a career in public service was what Joseph Kennedy wanted for his family. More than that, they lived with the idea of a possible presidency. Joseph Kennedy would almost certainly have run for president if Roosevelt hadn't gone on for a third term, and Joseph Kennedy Jr., John F. Kennedy's elder brother, while in his teens told Harold Lasky of the British Labour Party that he would be President of the United States and nothing else. He was to die in an aeroplane over the English Channel in the last years of the war. John Kennedy was very devoted to his elder brother in later life, but as children they fought with their minds and their fists. It may have been that John was over-anxious to fulfil his father's hopes for him, but knew that he was physically much inferior to his brother, who was an athlete without really trying to be one. When he first went to school, John Kennedy's weight wasn't right for the football team, or the school eight, but he compelled himself to gain weight and strength. He excelled at swimming, rowing and tennis. He made himself excel. And it was this over-strenuous playing up at football to a desired standard somewhat above his powers that caused the back injury, which still gives him trouble. At work, this story wasn't quite the same. He did well at the subjects he liked, poorly at the others. And it wasn't until late in his Harvard life that he came to grips with the importance of taking everything possible out of the place. The words of his father, who hadn't been to a university. He graduated with distinction in political science, and received the highest grade for his thesis on the pre-war political background in Europe, entitled Appeasement at Munich. It became his first book, and in this form he called it While England Slept. This book is important, for it shows how everything
0: that the 35th president has seen, heard, done, or felt can be turned to advantage by him. In 1937, President Roosevelt appointed his trusted Joseph Kennedy as ambassador to England. In 1938... After the occupation of the Sudetenland by German troops, after the Anschluss, John Kennedy crossed the Atlantic to stay with his father. He had been in England before, and so had his brother Joe. Both had travelled extensively in Europe, and their father valued their observations, observations by young minds already made familiar by him with international affairs. Now John and Joe were to visit Poland, Russia, Turkey and Palestine. Impressions and information were channelled back to Washington through His Excellency, the United States Ambassador, to the Court of St James. What importance these views had in Washington is not known, but what is obvious is the effect on John F. Kennedy of his father's trust in him. The Kennedy clan is something that makes the news every time it moves. The President's official appointments among members of the clan are viewed in different ways. There's no question of there being great financial advantages in these appointments. Joseph Kennedy, Sr. had seen to that when he settled a million in trust on each child. There is, of course, the matter of prestige and power, agreeable to even the very richest. But an observer in this year of 1963 may well ponder the idea that it was this reliance, in 1938, on his sons by a father who had planned how they should turn out, who understood them thoroughly, that made one of the sons, John F. Kennedy, rely on the members of his family when he needed help. The appointments were not made by the President because of distrust of others, but because
2: of proven trust in his own. In the book, young Kennedy, with an eye on Europe, held that democratic nations might have to meet totalitarianism with totalitarianism, because a democratic government, being people-controlled, took each step very slowly. He wanted strength for America immediately, not the apathy that had caused England's unpreparedness. To
0: say that democracy has been awakened by the events of the last few weeks, he wrote, is not enough. Any person will awaken when the house is burning down. What we need is a guard who will wake up when the fire first starts, or better yet, one that will prevent a fire starting at all.
2: But in England the fire had started. And Ambassador Kennedy saw London burn. Again and again, he advised President Roosevelt that America must remain out of the struggle and prepare for her own defence. joseph kennedy saw that much of europe would fall to the communists he was right and as he saw london shattered and blazing he told washington that england's cause was lost he was wrong
4: He was wrong, and when these private opinions were accidentally made public, he ceased to be ambassador to England. Diplomacy ended for him. And for his son,
0: the 35th president-to-be, active service began. In August 1943, Lieutenant Junior Grade John Kennedy was in command of Patrol Torpedo Boat 109 in the South Pacific. At the same time, the Japanese destroyer Amaguro was supervising the transfer of troops from one island to another. Her commander saw the P.T. boat before the Americans saw the destroyer. After a quick helm alteration, Amagaro split P.T. 109 in two, set her on fire, and passed on. Ten men managed to cling to the fore part of the vessel, and eventually Lieutenant Kennedy got them to swim to an island. It was a five-hour swim, and Kennedy was burdened by an injured engine-room artificer. He held the straps of his life jacket in his teeth and towed him as he swam for five hours. A deed of very great heroism. Each night he swam out from the island with a torch into the straits in attempts to contact passing United States craft. Eventually they were rescued. Again Kennedy had turned early lessons of his upbringing to advantage, the lessons
2: of physical endurance and mental determination. But it was the end of the US Navy for him. He became ill with malaria, many attacks. His back injury returned and there were operations on his spine. He lost weight and energy and had to wear a steel brace. Two years later, two years spent in hospital, he was demobilised. The war was over. The struggle to undo its effects on the world began. His elder brother hadn't been killed in the war kennedy might have kept himself politically in the background loyally helping joseph kennedy but content to let the greater glory go to him after demobilization he took up writing again this time as a journalist in a hearst owned news service and this took him to the first meetings of the newly established united nations organization after that his work brought him all over europe And what he saw, ruin and reconstruction, spreading communism and bold attempts to check it, and everywhere, the hand of his country, this made him realise that he preferred being a doer of deeds to being a reporter of deeds. He decided to run for the lower house in Congress.
4: Just as Joseph had been a natural athlete, so Joseph had been a natural politician who could talk to the man in the street simply and naturally, without effort. Jack couldn't. He was withdrawn, reserved, and scholarly. But by the end of his campaign, he could talk to anyone quite freely, and never missed an opportunity to make contacts. Once again, he had compelled himself to overcome something that stood in his way. At the age of 28, in 1945, he was elected to a Boston seat in Congress. He was twice re-elected to this seat, and in 1950 he ran for the Senate, for, in fact, the seat held by Henry Cabot Lodge. This was a challenge to the Republican Party, and the young Democrat was also challenging indirectly the presidential candidate, Dwight Eisenhower, who supported Lodge. However, the President's prestige was waning a little as the memories of the war began to fade, and Cabot Lodge was so busy running Eisenhower's campaign that he neglected his personal interests. Kennedy slipped in under his guard and made the Senate with a majority of 63 votes. He was 35. In 1952, He married. A senator, a millionaire by inheritance, and young. It was all success. Not the thing that was glibly mentioned at the time, the fictitious luck of the Irish, whatever that means, but planned progress. Work that he had undertaken because he felt bound by duty to do so, that's to say running for Congress, now became his life. His campaigns were wisely planned. He listened to the advice of what was called his brain's trust, and he relied very greatly on the help of members of his family, the same reliance that his father had placed in him and his brother before the war. And then...
0: And then an enemy moved. His back injury returned. He got it first at Harvard. It was made worse when his PT boat was run down, and after his discharge from hospital he had to use crutches sometimes. Now he had to go back to hospital for another operation. It didn't succeed. There was a second and he very nearly died. A third, and a very slow, recovery began. During this time, he wrote the book that gained him the Pulitzer Prize, Profiles in Courage. This book was made up of the histories of great Americans who had acted as individuals and according to their consciences, but seldom to their advantage. And it was more than that. It was a foreshadowing of his view
4: that someone would have to rise and make very great and possibly very painful decisions, if America was to survive as great in herself and great in the struggle for the world's good. Situations would have to be simplified, truths recognised and old machinery scrapped. Kennedy was looking across a new frontier. The reviewers quickly appreciated that this book was one man's plan for the future of the United States.
2: In fact, it was the start of his campaign for the presidency the office that his elder brother had been so confident would be his one day. Those words, written in the middle fifties, began the battle that was to conclude in the oath-taking and assumption of office in 1961. By 1956, his team had begun the four-year campaign. Very soon, people were asking questions, and two questions were of tremendous importance to the young Catholic candidate. The first question was, If a situation arose in which the dictates of your church and the demands of your country might conflict, where would your loyalty lie? Kennedy replied soberly, In the
0: first place, I can't think of any issue in which such a conflict might arise. Nobody in my church gives me orders. It doesn't work that way. I've been in Congress for ten years now, and it never has happened. People are afraid that Catholics take orders from a higher organisation. They don't. Or at least, I don't. Besides, I can't act as a private individual might. My responsibility is to my constituents and the Constitution. So if it came to a conflict between the two, and not just a personal, moral issue, I am bound to act for the interests of the many. It is the obligation of a public servant to defend the Constitution.
2: It is the obligation. Answers like that won him many Protestant adherents. They also caused a flow of anti-Catholic circulars in the post. The second question was about civil rights, the full exercise of their rights as citizens by the Negro population and the matter of their integration. This question of civil rights and integration is, of course, of the very first importance at this moment in America. Before he had to make a statement on civil rights, he'd arranged to speak in Mississippi. Later in his campaign, when he was due to appear there, the riots at Little Rock had begun. But that didn't stop him speaking. Eisenhower had sent in troops to Little Rock to support the Supreme Court decision on integration. He was being defied by State Governor Forbus. The position was this. If Kennedy spoke against segregation, he'd lose the southern votes. If he tried to placate the southern segregationists, he'd lose the northern liberal votes. Again, he stood by the thing essential to government in his answer to the local Republican Party. I have no hesitation, he said,
0: in telling the local Republican chairman the same thing I told my own city of Boston, that I accept the Supreme Court decision as the supreme law of the land. I think most of us agree on the necessity to uphold law and order in all parts of the country. That honest answer
4: gained him the support of many doubting Baptists and Methodists, as well as Negro support. Later on, the arrest of the Negro integrationist, the Reverend Martin Luther King, made the headlines, and he has recently appeared in them again. Both John Kennedy and his brother Robert spoke out strongly against the arrest. But Richard Nixon, thinking of the southern white vote, said nothing, lost the respect of many, and damaged his cause with Negroes north and south.
2: The Republican Party in America is the party of the right wing. It chose Lincoln for president, it abolished slavery, established the civil service and its laws, and brought America to its first greatness. But now it had shrunk, and it was time for the Democratic Party to move After a campaign through every state, the Democratic Party reached the first great point of importance in a presidential election, the Party Convention. And the Democratic Party Convention of the 1960 campaign was held in Los Angeles, California. This is a political event that we can only guess at. Bands, processions, entire hotels taken over by the delegates and the supporters. Lobbying, bedroom bargainings, floodlights, microphones, and more and more public appearances of candidates. Glamour girl cheerleaders, the campaign song, High Hopes, drum majorettes, comic hats, and candy floss in the party colours for free. All this lubricates the enormous electoral machinery of America. And there were two best-selling books in Los Angeles, a symbol of the struggle. John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage and Paul Blanchard's bitterly and ignorantly anti-Catholic American Freedom and Catholic Power.
0: But very soon America was to be overshadowed by fear and misgiving. The gaiety and the plotting under the blue skies of California were suddenly arrested.
5: American weather plane down over Russia. It is reported that the weather reconnaissance Lockheed aircraft U-2 off course over Soviet territory owing to failure of the pilot's oxygen supply was forced to land and that the pilot is being held by the Soviet authorities. The Russians claim that the U-2 was shot down but the State Department does not consider this possible. These aircraft have been described as flying weather laboratories and perform their duties at a height of 12 miles at which altitude A Pentagon spokesman claims the U-2 could not be reached by anti-aircraft fire. The possibility is being investigated that the pilot may have become unconscious owing to lack of oxygen and was flown into Soviet airspace by his automatic pilot. Orders have been given for oxygen supply overhauls on all aircraft of this type. Four high-altitude Lockheeds operating in Turkey and three in Japan have been grounded. More news in an hour.
0: But there had been no oxygen failure, and the aircraft was not on weather reconnaissance. It was on photographic reconnaissance. U-2 was flying over Soviet territory on a spying mission. Its pilot, Gary Powers, was in Soviet hands, and bits of the U-2 were on display in Moscow. And this had occurred almost on the eve of the Paris Summit Disarmament Conference. German Khrushchev seized on the U-2 incident as an
4: example of America's bad faith and he broke up the conference. We now know that he was under pressure to do this from his generals, but had no reasonable excuse for doing it, especially since the other countries had gone so far to meet his views. The U-2 incident occurred at the right moment for him, or was contrived at the right moment by him. The conference broke up, and Russia resumed nuclear tests in the atmosphere.
2: The immediate effect of the U-2 incident was on the President and the Office of President. Momentarily, feuding delegates became one in their anxiety at the Los Angeles Convention. Had the President approved these spy flights on the eve of the summit talks, they wondered. It appeared that he had not. Who had, then? Who gave the commands? Who really was in charge of America's destiny? Other incidents were to follow. The American reconnaissance aircraft RB-47 was shot down into the Barents Sea on a flight from Bryce Norton in England.
5: Any more spy flights means war, threatened Khrushchev.
0: Clouds cover the world. There were riots in Turkey, whose government was friendly towards the United States. Rioters in Korea overthrew Syngman Rhee.
2: Fidel Castro accepted Khrushchev's support. The situation in the Congo was grave. All of this was to affect the presidency, and the early part of the news meant much at the Los Angeles Democratic Convention. There were five major candidates for the presidency. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Adlai Stevenson, Symington, and Maynard. Of these, Stevenson had a platform that looked very good at this anxious moment. The strengthening of the United Nations organization, the ending of bomb tests, the reorganization of the Atlantic Alliance, and most important of all, a search for a means of coexistence with the USSR. From nowhere, then came a sudden popular demonstration and hundreds poured into the convention hall itself, demanding Stevenson's nomination as Democratic candidate for president. Stevenson had allowed his name to go forward for nomination, without agreeing to run for president. Now he agreed to run, but the sudden wave of popularity passed. Kennedy's popularity had waned, but it rallied again and it was John F. Kennedy who was asked by the delegates of the Democratic Party to accept nomination. In his speech of acceptance, he stressed the need to abandon old party prejudices and differences and to think of the welfare of the United States. He quoted Winston Churchill speaking to the Commons. If we open a quarrel between the present and the past, the Prime Minister had said, we shall be in danger of losing the future. He said that America stood on a new frontier of unknown perils and opportunities. He ended the speech that closed the convention by saying, Now begins another
0: journey, taking me into your cities and homes all over America. Give me your help. Give me your hand, your voice, and your vote.
5: Vice President Nixon's campaign didn't really begin until June 1960. The Republican convention was held in Chicago. Nixon's advisers had devised a campaign for him based on propositions such as President Eisenhower and the Republican Party have restored peace and prosperity to us and the anxieties of war have now disappeared. And Senator Kennedy is young and inexperienced. I know Khrushchev. I've met him, talked with him. I know his mind. There was a very great difference between the openness of Kennedy with his team of reliable friends, members of his family and the celebrated brains trust of university professors and the solitary and secretive Richard Nixon. At the very start, the convention was thrown into confusion. The convention had issued a formal denial that Nixon was offering Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, the office of vice-president. But, in fact, he was doing just that and secretly. Nixon and Rockefeller had drawn up between them 14 points of policy in regard to foreign affairs and defence. Suddenly, they released the terms to the newspapers. The Republican committee men in Chicago were furious because Richard Nixon's act made it appear as though they were without importance. President Eisenhower was even more furious because many of the 14 points were actually his and now they were being attributed to Nixon and Rockefeller. It was a most unhappy situation, and the lone wolf, uncooperative attitude of the candidate aggravated the situation. For example, Vice President Nixon did not wish to speak to Puerto Ricans, Negroes, Jews or minority blocs. Kennedy spoke to everyone. But Nixon had some very powerful arguments when he spoke on the question of state government over the government at Washington. The Democrats believed in federal intervention in state government when the Negro question was involved, and Eisenhower, though a Republican, had intervened in the Little Rock episode. Now his vice-president was telling the southern governors and their southern whites that he did not agree with federal intervention. This got him considerable support in the South, but he threw much of it away by having a maintenance of civil rights clause in his 14 points. The problem of both candidates was how to win as many as possible of the votes of the southern whites and the northern Negroes. Nixon was using his poor country boy deprived in youth appeal to win the form vote, and his peace, prosperity, and long political experience to win as many Catholic votes as he could from the younger Kennedy. At the same time, Kennedy was making a special appeal to the white-collar voters and the Protestant voters. It was to come to a head in the famous television debates.
2: The television chiefs were very anxious to secure these debates for their programmes. At the time, 1960, the reputation of television was very low. There had been the Payola scandal of 1959. There was the Congressional hearing, and now the press was treating the programme standards with contempt debates between the two presidential candidates vice president nixon and john kennedy would do something to restore the reputation of television there were four of these debates the first was really only a meeting together in public of the two men the second ranged over castro the u2 incident espionage kumoy and matsu the third was almost completely given over to kumoy and matsu the public opinion assessors were busy and it was noticed that audiences for the third debate had fallen away greatly, but that it was considered to be Nixon's best performance. The fourth debate is reported to have been tired and dreary, but the viewing figures had risen again. The difference in technique was that Kennedy spoke to the viewers. Nixon spoke to Kennedy. Kennedy made statements. Nixon was on the defensive, counter-attacking. Nixon had an excellent platform appearance, but on television the lights were unkind to his skin and his dark jaws and deep eyes. Kennedy allowed himself to be advised on television technique. Vice President Nixon did not. How much these debates influenced the final result is not known, nor is the effect known of the telethons, in which the candidate faced a camera and answered questions telephoned in to him. The television appearances were steps along the campaign road that led to the actual voting. And we're indebted to Professor David Green of the University of New York for this explanation of the American system of election.
6: I suppose what strikes most people as being the oddest thing about the way in which an American president is elected is the fact that although he is nominated by a political party and offered as a candidate for the people to vote for, It is not actually the people who elect him, but another body of voters called the Electoral College, the strangest of our political institutions. The Electoral College owes its origin to the men who wrote the American Constitution in 1787. A good many of them were apprehensive about the possibility that the presidency they were creating might become the refuge of tyrants and dictators. So they decided that the best way to eliminate this danger was to guarantee that the President would be elected not by the common people, but by a more select, more judicious body of voters. These men who framed our Constitution were unable to foresee the possibility that the country would one day be divided between two large and powerful political parties and that the election of the President would be conducted on party lines. Because of this, our Constitution did not provide for the existence of political parties. In fact, it never even mentioned them. But the way in which the Electoral College has come to function in modern times is a far cry from what the Founding Fathers intended, and this change has been brought about by custom and sanctioned by what historians call our unwritten Constitution. During the summer of an election year, some three or four months before the election, each of our two political parties holds a national convention which is attended by delegates of the party from all of the states in the Union. At these conventions, which have come to combine some of the characteristics of a circus and a race meeting, each party nominates a candidate for president and a candidate for vice president. Then, some weeks later, at smaller meetings in each one of the 50 states, each party's organization within each state meets to choose a body of electors. Each one of these electors agrees to pledge his vote for the party's candidates. There are thus two bodies of electors in each state, one Democrat and one Republican. But eventually, only one of them will have a chance to cast its votes depending on which party wins the state. Now, I should also point out that although each state eventually has only one body of electors, the number of electors each state is entitled to is determined by the number of senators and representatives it has in Congress. And this, in turn, is determined roughly by the size of the state's population. You will see from this that some states which have large populations have more electoral votes than other states with small populations. In November, when the American people go to the polls and vote for either of the candidates nominated by a political party or for an independent candidate who represents no party, the essential thing to remember here is that each voter votes in his own state with the knowledge that the only way his vote can actually count in electing the president is by his candidates winning the state. If the Democratic candidate, for example, gets more votes than any of his opponents, he wins the state. Then, of course, only the electors chosen by the Democratic state organization get to vote for the president in the Electoral College, and he gets all of their votes. The Republican candidate, on the other hand, who has lost the state, gets no electoral votes whatever from that state. You might say, therefore, that the popular votes which were cast for him no longer can affect the election because they have been eliminated at the state level. Now, you can readily see from this that the only way to win a presidential election is to win the states with the large numbers of electoral votes. Instead of one election, you might say that there are 50 different elections. And this system of electing a president state by state and using an electoral college to cast the final but predictable vote has its obvious disadvantages. It has been argued that the Electoral College is an outmoded institution, a meaningless formality whose effect upon the election has already been predetermined by the people and the parties. It, o- as it has also been argued that the splitting up of the election into 50 different segments, state by state, has the effect of distorting the real sentiment of the country and ensuring that millions of votes cast by the people will almost literally go uncounted. But whatever disadvantages the system may present, I think most Americans will agree that it has the effect of making a presidential election one of the most exciting and suspenseful events. Particularly on election night, after the polls have closed and everybody has his eye glued to the television set or his ear to the radio, listening to the early returns from the smaller states and trying to anticipate what effect the later returns from the larger states will have upon the election. It also makes a political contest in my country a local contest, where victory must be secured on a state level before it can be translated into national significance.
4: In the last days of the campaign, it looked like being a landslide for Kennedy. So strongly did important voices speak in his favour, important columnists, and even the rather Republican New York Times. But John Kennedy was not sure enough to relax. He kept working until the very last day. Which was Monday, November the seventh, 1960. Next day was election day. There was nothing more for either candidate to do. Senator Kennedy went back to his family at Hyannisport and found his house transformed. It was a communication centre. There were men there who were skilled in reading the trends as results came in, and there were electronic computers giving their mechanical conjecture. And near to each candidate were sixteen secret service men, waiting for the signal given by the final figures to move in and surround and protect the president-elect as he would be surrounded and protected at all times during his period in office. At that time, P.P. P. O'Reilly, now editor of Broadsheet, was detached from Radio into United Nations Radio, and he sent us this description of the small hours of November the 8th, when the results were not yet final.
0: Perhaps the world already knew that Kennedy was going to make it, but we here in the studios and the offices of the uh, Voice of America watched as his early leads were whittled down and almost disappeared. We had watched as Vice President Nixon over in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel told us he was going to bed and that Kennedy seemed to be winning. But there was no concession by Nixon of defeat. He had hopes that the West would steamroll the election towards the Republicans. It was a slight hope. And there were tears in the eyes of Pat Nixon, the candidate's wife, as Dick Nixon at 3.15 a.m. New York Times spoke to his helpers and told them how he felt. His helpers were quick to show their sympathy and their distress. This is how it was,
3: and here is Mr. Nixon. I am sure that uh, many are listening here uh, who are supporting Mr. Senator Kennedy.
5: I know, too, that he probably is listening to this program. And while the... uh... And I...
3: And uh, as I look at the board here, uh, while there are still some results still to come in, uh,
5: if the present trend continues, uh, if Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, will be the next president of the United States...
2: So, John F. Kennedy became president-elect and inheritor of a power so vast that we've no real conception of it. Professor Green explains it like this.
6: Some of the vast powers which the President of the United States exercises were given to him by the U.S. Constitution, but a good many of them have no actual constitutional basis. They have merely developed out of the American system and attached themselves to the President because he has seemed to be the logical man for them to attach themselves to. First of all, the president is head of state, combining in his person something of the majesty of a king and the influence of a prime minister. Next, he is the chief executive of the government. That is, he actually runs the government and is the boss of the more than two million people who work for it. Next, he is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, a sort of seven-star general and admiral combined. He actually fights our wars, in that he appoints the generals who fight them in accordance with his wishes. Next, he is the chief diplomat of the government, supreme in the matter of foreign relations. Now all of these functions which the President fills are clearly delineated in the Constitution, but other functions he fills are not based on the Constitution, and in fact some of them seem to have developed in spite of the Constitution. Take, for example, the matter of legislation. The men who wrote our Constitution quite clearly attempted to separate the powers of the executive branch of the government, which the President heads, from those of the legislative branch, which the Congress represents. The President was to have no power to pass laws, nor was he to have any final power of persuasion over the Congress which did. But what has happened is that, in effect, the President has become our most important legislator. When he assumes office the people expect him not just to run the government and make foreign policy but to see that whatever legislation the country needs becomes a reality many of our most celebrated laws were drafted in our president's office introduced on the floor of congress at his request and passed through his influence and by means of the pressures that only he can exert the president is also the head of a political party He selects the party's national chairman and other top party officials, and through the party organization he uses his authority over the members of Congress who belong to his party. Finally, his most august role is that in which he is nothing less than the authentic voice of the American people, for he is not only the natural repository of the people's sovereignty, but also the symbol of their collective conscience. This
2: presidential power came to him, And it was a narrow victory, for in spite of his bad relations with many of his supporters, his lack of success in the television debates, and the forecast of a Kennedy landslide, Richard Nixon ran the president-elect very close. Kennedy carried 23 of the 50 states, Nixon
5: 27. In terms of the popular vote, Kennedy polled 34,221,463. Richard
0: Nixon polled 34,108,482. Kennedy polled 49.7%. Nixon polled 49.6%.
2: A difference of 0.1%, but in an electorate of nearly 69 millions. Now the question today is of a new term of office, or perhaps a new president. There are wavering states to be consolidated, hostile states to be won over fresh sympathies to be gained. And for any future candidate, there's the business of making huge numbers of unregistered citizens put their names down and become voters. But it's evident that the president-elect's mind was not on political affairs, but on world affairs, when he made his inaugural speech at the oath-taking. His mind was set on America's becoming the greatest world power and, as such, the maintainer of peace peace and a strong arm against aggression.
3: In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation ask not what america will do for you but what together we can do for the freedom of man finally whether you are citizens of america or citizens of the world ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you with a good conscience Our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own.